Well, good morning, Disciples Church. Good to see you here with us today as we dive into the Word of God together. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Jonah. You'll find Jonah in the latter part of your Old Testament, just after Obadiah and before Micah. We're in a wonderful season as we study this good book, the Old Testament, and good truths that God has for us, and um, digging into things like rebellion and repentance and Seeing the gospel in a sweet and wonderful way, I pray it's a blessing for you in your life. It's good to have you here with us today. If you're visiting, we look forward to getting to know you better. And, uh, God is uh, at work in a, a really sweet way in the life of our church. We're in our 130th year of ministry here in Bakersfield in this brand new place. and um, Wonderful season of getting to know new families and growing with you. And Just really thankful for his work in our lives. Um, we left off last week. The last verse of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 10. And so let's start there as we move into chapter 3 and spend our time in chapter 3 there to this today. And as we do, I want to pray. Father, I thank you for this time that you've given us. You are a good God and uh, worthy of all of our lives. Um, surely uh, each one of us, Lord, is guilty of, of making many of our days uh, about what we want, about what serves us. Uh, and yet, in your grace, you have given us new life in Christ, a chance to, to really know you and have the power of God at work in and through us, to push off sin and selfishness, to live for you and your purposes, uh, to make much of your great gospel, and to be um, really uh, used by you in, in, in the days you've entrusted to us for your purposes, for your glory. As we look to repentance today, as we look to the outworking uh, of your grace and just... Uh, pray that you would just move on us, Lord, convict us, grow us, mature us for what you would have before us uh, this day. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The launch of today's sermon is in the midst of vomit. The sovereign God who controls all things is at work in this amazing moment to save Jonah from the depths of the Mediterranean Sea, to ordain this very special time of reflection and prayer for him in the belly of this huge fish for three days. Uh, a time of, of him seeing his sin, Jonah seeing his sin, of calling out to God in prayer and confessing it and committing himself to the Lord again, recognizing salvation belongs to the Lord. The, the time of emphasis we had in last week's sermon in chapter 2. And now a new beginning to, to see this fish deliver this man, probably just skin all warped out and bleached out from being in the belly of this fish, land on the shoreline. Can you imagine having been a bystander to see that that day? Here comes this big fish, throws this guy up, and here he goes. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. God is so gracious. And yet we are guilty of calling him in contempt when things don't go the way we want them to. And yet I just, I was just overtaken by just this view of this, this second chance that Jonah has given here. 
And I want us to just slow this morning, just consider how gracious God is to us. I mean, how many new beginnings and fresh starts he's given us in our lifetime. Things we should have never survived. I mean, it is solely because God is persistent in grace that we are even alive and serving him today. I mean, think of all the times you deserved to be done by the holy standard of God. How many times you were given not just a second chance, but a third, an eighth, a twenty-sixth. Jonah surely deserved to be done. He had nothing but absolute confirmation of the sovereign power and work of God to do God's perfect will. He, he was a prophet of God. He had a front row seat for the, the power of God, the, the will of God to, do, to work perfectly. Jonah should have done what God commanded him to do. Chapter 1. Should have been quick to say, yes, Lord. But in his sin, he went his own way. Look at that first command, Jonah chapter 1, 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amity, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He denied God. He disobeyed him. He went his own way. He had his own thinking for what should happen. He didn't want to see what God said would happen to happen. It should have been easy for Jonah to just do what God called him to do, but he made it incredibly hard. He served his flesh instead. He flat out rebelled against God's clear command, and he did only what he wanted to do instead. Jonah runs in disobedience and rebellion. He abandons faithfulness to God and sins against the holy God. Jonah should have been done. God would have been absolutely just in letting Jonah sink to the depths of the Mediterranean. But in God's mercy, he saves Jonah from his sinful rebellion. He gives him a second chance. In chapter 2, we read that Jonah confesses his sin and commits himself to the Lord again. And so God gives him a new beginning and ordains the fish to vomit him onto the shore to send him forth. I want you to just do some honest inventory right now. How often are you guilty of looking to God with disdain because things aren't going the way you think they should go? Instead of being resentful and disobedient, we need to become oh so much more aware of the fact that we wouldn't even be here to complain if in God's grace he didn't continue us and give us grace and mercy to have another day. Another day we didn't deserve. Another chance, another opportunity, a new beginning. We, w- we wouldn't have sinful gripes for our kids if God didn't even or- ordain our kids to be. I mean, there's just so many layers to how that, that works. And my, my point is this, that as we witness Jonah's second chance, his new beginning, 
May, may we be slow to just realize how much the Lord has done this in our own lives. And, and, and just that that would well up with just gratitude to him. And thankfulness. And just to, God, you're so gracious. Instead of that sinful thing that we do where we're just so selfish and spoiled. We're just like, this, this next thing's not going my way again. And we got nothing but complaints for him. May we not use his patience, his faithfulness, his grace to ever put him in our debt saying, because you are a God of grace, you should give me grace and a second chance in this situation. Who are you to demand that of God? Who are we to make demands of God and to call what, what is now before us unjust? I mean, we've been given so much grace, we couldn't repay it in a thousand lifetimes. The other side of the coin is, praise God for a new beginning, for a new day. He purposed you to wake up this morning. Do you realize how at the helm of all of creation the living God is? These things that we take for granted so often. He's not done with you. He who has ordered and numbered your days before they began. You woke up this morning. What does that mean? That means the sovereign God is not done with you. He's giving you a new day, a new start, an opportunity to live for him and make much of his holy name. Praise God. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us be glad in it. Let us be thankful for him. What will you do with your new beginning? What, what, will you rejoice and be glad in it or, and serve him all the more? The Lord employed Jonah again to his service. And Jonah is all the more fitted for it. Sometimes we grow and mature through the hardships that we faced and God uses those things, all things, for our good, for his purposes. Thankfully, Jonah takes up a new path. He does what God has called him to. His confession in the belly of the fish now turns to real repentance. The commitment to God now is going to turn into real action that honors the Lord. And that's the difference between confession and repentance. Confession is admitting sin. It's calling sin, sin. Repentance is turning from it. It's taking up a new path. So just to call it sin, but then do nothing different to continue in it is not repentance. We need to see what is sin. We need to turn from it and now begin to do what honors the Lord. Take up a new path. In light of the gospel at work in our lives, we have a new beginning, a new day to live for him and his glory. I ask you this morning, what area of your life are you desperate for a new beginning that doesn't serve your flesh or, the, or your sin, but serves the Lord? It honors him. Will you be done with your sinful, selfish practice and honor the Lord from this day forward in that area of your life? This is what Peter did. Peter, one of those, one of those core three of the twelve disciples, and so passionate, committed to the Lord Jesus, and, and yet he denied even knowing him three times to save his own tail. He's, I don't even know the man. He was just broken. And the rooster crowed and he realized he had done it, realized he had 
denied his Lord, not once, not twice, but three times. And yet God in his grace calls him to a new beginning. He repents. He doesn't let it implode him. He doesn't give up. He doesn't throw it away. He confesses. He turns to the Lord and he lives for the Lord the rest of his days. He dies for the Lord an early death, faithful to God. And is Peter perfect the rest of his days? No. We have many examples in Scripture where Peter just completely falls on his face. But each time he stands up, he turns from that sin unto the Lord and matures and grows all the more. A force to be reckoned with for the kingdom of God by the power of God at work within him. Will this be you? I say often, I'm, I'm less concerned about what has happened as of late. What, what's behind you? What will you do with today and forward? Will you continue to be anchored and shackled to, to, to the hurts and the pains and the, and the sins? Or will you allow the Lord to bring a new beginning and to move you forth for His glory? If so, how will this be for you more than just words? How will you put it into action? Who will you share your newfound commitment to the Lord so that you can be accountable? Someone who can walk with you. Someone who really knows you, can walk with you, can be praying for you and, 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 and pressing you into Christ every step of the way. May it be so. Look with me, verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. The, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Oh, what a gift it is when God speaks to his people. In that day, the word of the Lord came through the prophets. The true prophets of God. In the New Testament early church day, the word of the Lord came through the apostles. Until the canon of Holy Scripture is finished, the word of the Lord is here. It's the written word of God. What a blessing to not have to uh, overly be concerned about, about how, how we heard it or didn't hear it. It's written before us. It's translated. It's, it's persevered. The word of God, everything we need is before us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's what you need for those things. The word of God. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Consider with me the fact that our physical life begins with the Word of God. By His Word we are created, Psalm 33, 6, Hebrews eleven three. He upholds the universe by the Word of His power, Hebrews 1, 3. Consider with me the fact that our spiritual lives only begins by the Word of God. By His own will He brought us forth by the Word of truth, James 1, 18. You have been born anew through the living and abiding Word of God. 1 Peter 1.23 We cannot have faith, we will not have faith without hearing and receiving the Word of God. 
Romans 10.17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Not only do we begin to live spiritually by God's word, but we make way, we progress, we mature by the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, Jesus testified, quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. But every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do not be fooled, church. Do not be fooled, beloved, to think that you are a Christian who will grow and thrive in what God has for you if you are not feasting on the Word of God. The Word of God is not a book that you might do okay without haphazardly finding its way into your life on occasion when you feel like it, when, when there's nothing else to do. According to these scriptures, it's a matter of life and death. If you treat the word of God as optional, the scriptures as optional, you forfeit the very foundation and outworking that God wants to do in maturing your faith. My plea to our church, to our people, is that we would be a people so very thankful and, and, and faithful to the study and the knowing and the testifying of the Word of God. Maybe hold fast to the Word of life, as Paul commissions the church in Philippi to, in Philippians 2.16. May, may we join the psalmist who says in Psalm 1, verse 2, may we delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. See with me that the, the Lord didn't give Jonah a new beginning and say, okay, good luck, buddy, and just send him off with no direction, you know, figure it out. No, no, he gave him his word. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. He, he gave him a direction. He gave him a command, a commission. Just as you and I have been given the word of the Lord. The inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative, written word of God. Are you guilty of being given a new day by God, a new beginning, by God's providential decree in your life, but then arrogantly, pridefully, lazily just go about those days your own way? Or do you cherish and slow to consider and apply the word of God for your life. I pray that we value and obey the word of the Lord. Not only value and obey it, but testify to it faithfully and fully. The call on Jonah to speak the word of the Lord as He's called to do this as the Lord gives it to him. So in other words, not to put his own little touches on it and, 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 and to, to make it something that the Lord didn't give him or to take away. No alteration. And this is critical. Uh, John Gill is a Reformed English Baptist pastor, Bible scholar, theologian. He says it this way. Jonah must not be gratified with any alteration in the message. But he must go with it as it has been before given. 
or what he now bid or should bid him, the word of the Lord must be spoken just as it is delivered. Nothing must be added to it or taken from it. The whole counsel of God must be declared. Prophets and ministers must preach not as men bid them, but as God bids them. How true this is and essential for today. We are in a culture filled with churches and pulpits who are itching ears and trying to tell people what they want to hear to increase their volume. To preach the word of God as it is given, to not add or take away is the call on my life as your preaching pastor here at Disciples Church, on our elders, your shepherds, on our teaching team, our leaders. We must preach and teach and lead you as according to the word of the Lord and not according to what you want to hear or what you want us to tell you. Pray for us. Pray for us that we never bend. That is a temptation before your teachers and preachers every week. That we somehow think we're going to outthink God. We're going to tell you something that you want to hear the way you want to hear it and somehow that's better for all of us. The temptation to maybe make you like me a little more. May, may you never desire that we stand for or teach you what you want to hear or the way you wish we would teach it, but only as according to the Word of God, as He has given it, no less and no more. Even through tears, even when we're wrestling with, is this real? Is this hard? These are hard truths. And, and I just say, praise God, praise God for these last 10, 11 years of Reformation. It has not been easy. There has been many moments for us where we've said in tears, this is hard. Is this the word of God? To confirm and to slow down, to fight back any part of our flesh that wants it to be this and that. To be willing to make the changes necessary to put away our tradition as a 130-year-old church, as our preferences of our congregation, to know that hundreds of people, hundreds of thousands of dollars, great ministry leaders would leave because they're no longer getting what they want it to be. And we had to get smaller as a church. There's a core faithful that had to link arms and rise up and say, no matter how hard it is, we're clinging to the word of God alone. May the word of God lead us forward. May you not be guilty of wishing we were giving it to you a different way. May we not be guilty of feet. Of, of tipping into that part of our flesh to trust the word of God to do the work of God the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying arise go to Nineveh that great city and call out against it the message that I tell you Jonah's called a second time and in verse 3 and 4 we see Jonah does what God tells him to do and says what God tells him to say. Look with me. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. 
Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He didn't add to these words. He didn't take away. This is what the Lord wanted declared. He got up. He didn't do what he wanted to do that day. Jonah didn't like these people. He hated these people. These people were his enemy. He didn't go hang out with people he was comfortable with that day. He didn't adjust the sermon so it would say what he thinks is the better thing to be said for these people. He said what God gave him to say. He went into that evil big city and did the work God called him to do. According to the word of the Lord. May this be the testimony of Disciples Church and our people. May we do as according to the word of the Lord. I say big and evil city because it was. Nineveh was the metropolis of the Assyrian Empire in its time. Jonah was about to approach the most powerful monarch on earth. He did not relent. He did not fear this man. Why? Because Jonah was sent by a greater king. Amen? Romans 8.31 If God is for us, who can be against us? God refers to it again as a great city. Exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breath. That is a big city. That is a monstrous city. And the wickedness it was known for. Do you remember in the first words of Jonah chapter 1, 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amnon, he's saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. That's not to say that God discovered something he didn't know. What he's saying there is the evil is so great, it is calling out loud for vengeance, for, for judgment. It is ripe for destruction. Their, their evil and their wickedness was open-handed. It was bold. It was brazen. These things are in the sight of the Lord, and they are staunchly against him and his holiness. The Bible describes Nineveh as one of the most godless, evil, cruel cities of its time. You remember a, a few weeks ago in describing the horrific and evil things as, as given to us in the book of Nahum, things like evil plots against God, exploitation of the helpless, cruelty and war, so many examples of that, idolatry, prostitution, witchcraft. I, I gave you some horrific examples in, in week one. I told you I'd add a few more today. They were, they were known for taking their captives and burying them alive in the ground, only the head exposed, and then driving a strip of leather through their tongue so they couldn't close their mouth, so that anything that would crawl along the ground could crawl into their face as it wished, and just left them there. They, they would display those that they had overtaken by dragging them back to the gates of their city and impaling them on stakes through their mouths upside down so that as gravity did it work, it would skewer their body and then they would just be left there dead as human skewers before the people approaching the city. This is who Jonah has been called to go call to repentance. To walk through its doors and walk up to its people and its leaders and call them to repent. Sometimes we modern Americans, we hear of people like this. People 
we have in our own day and sinful work and 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 and, and sometimes we we think I, I never I never even wish for their redemption. I mean, we kind of relate to Jonah in that way. That they deserve condemnation. They deserve the wrath of God. And here's the reality. They do deserve the wrath of God for their evil wickedness. But here's the other reality. So did every one of us. To not understand that is to not understand the absolute holiness of God in his utter perfection. It's to not understand a lifetime of just absolute betrayal of what he's due in his holy perfection. That what we call little sin betrays what he is due and we are just flooded with guilt because of our sin and our depravity. There's no part of us deserving of a relationship with the holy God. We too are deserving his righteous wrath. When we rightly see the holiness of God and all that he is due in his utter perfection and the sinfulness of man, the real and blatant and blasphemous sin of mankind, we too see that we're not worthy of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ to set us free. And and how arrogant and prideful we have become to somehow rise up and, and, and call ourselves better than others or other nations. We take on horizontal opinions and views of these things. We, we, we miss the arrogance, the sin, the wickedness of our own city, of our own families. Consider the ease and the regularity by which the people of our very city, neighborhoods, and even homes just consume with casual disregard utterly pornographic material. Flippantly, just indulge in the name of fun or entertainment or letting loose. Consider the self-indulgence of Western American culture, the, 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 the wealth. Consider the reality of 3,300 unborn babies murdered every day in the womb in this great United States of America, permissioned by the laws of our land. We look back on previous generations and things that they've done, things that we look back and go, how could these people so casually live through this kind of racism or this kind of atrocity And yet we live in the midst of some of that very real wickedness and it is just so normal in our very culture and city. And I could go on and on with the list. But the point is we too live in a time in a city that is great and evil too. The wickedness among man is active. It's a real thing among the people in the homes of our very city, of our very culture. 
calling things normal. Teachers this year in new California law are being told to, to basically consider pedophiles as, as, as the, that's their own option of a way to live. And then that's, that's to be received as normal and, and okay. That's on the books. That, that's now the new policy. Like Nineveh, we too are desperate for the people of God to fulfill the command of God to take the word of the Lord to the people he has put around us. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is the commission. That is the word of the Lord on us, the church. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go to Nineveh and preach that they would repent. The word of the Lord is upon every one of us that we would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, teach all that he's commanded us, make disciples of all nations. We too have been commissioned. We're called to go and be his witnesses to proclaim the message he has so clearly given us in his word, the gospel, good news. And and we don't do it with a religious superiority looking down on wicked people. We say, "I'm, I'm just like you. The only difference is one degree of grace by which God has given me eyes to see and ears to hear to trust my life to Jesus for forgiveness. That is the word before you. Repent of your sin and trust your life to Jesus too and be saved. When God gives true repentance and saving faith to one person, it's called conversion. When God does this by the hundreds and the thousands, it's called revival. While revival is needed, and we must pray, and we should pray for revival among our lost city and our nation and to the ends of the earth, Revival is not something that man conjures up with well-planned events and modern movements like the church is guilty of really getting busy with this last couple decades. No, no, no. We're not in charge of revival. Revival belongs to the Lord. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. As we studied thoroughly last week. You know what belongs to us? Evangelism. The call to be evangels, to go out and be testifiers of the gospel. That's the assignment given to us. To make disciples that would be raised in these truths and then also go on to preach and teach and testify the gospel unto the nations. The divine command of God is that we too are to arise and go and preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we call sinners to repentance and belief in Jesus alone for salvation. Christian, when was the last time you did this with someone that God's put in your path? I'll ask you a more sobering question. Have you ever done that? If Christ has saved you and given you one more day after salvation, that was the call on your life that day. And the next, and the next, and every day he gives you under the sun. To fulfill that great commission. Not, 
not just to make money and earn a retirement and, and, and fulfill our horizontal longings. Those are practical things entrusted to us with such a variance, rich or poor, healthy or sick. God uses all those different parameters for that gospel message to go out. The gospel testimony, the making of disciples in the nations is the call on every one of our lives. That's why the best money we spend every month when we get our income is to the work of the local church and the making of disciples. That's why we joyfully give to that. Because every other part that we consume just for temporary living is just for the temporary. We're not called to be quiet. We're not called to cater to the preferences of the lost world as to how they would like us to speak to them. That's nonsense. We are to herald the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ to the dead, guilty, evil, idolatrous, self-seeking sinners like we all once were with the prayer that God, it is God's will that they too will repent and believe and be saved and adopted into his eternal family. This is what Jonah goes into that city to do. And we need this word of clarity in our modern day. Because even though some of us are like, wow, I'm glad that Jonah got his act together and he start serving God again. Many of us are still very much wrapped up in the running and rebellion of the mindset of Jonah we saw in chapter 1 more than we understand. Christians are running from the cities and the people groups of the world who are sin sick and desperate for the gospel because we're too focused on what we want and what will be easier or better for us. Christians are moving out of California. They're moving out of the city in the masses right now. Why? Because it is wicked. And it is run by wicked people. And there is a growing ideology of wicked, sinful ideology and policies happening all the time. It's disgusting. It's deplorable. It's sinful. It's against the, the will of the Lord. Absolutely. But the commission on our lives is not to do what so many conservative Christians are doing, which is to find conservative states in our country to, to go get away from sick sin people who are desperate for the gospel so we can go focus on what's good for us. We often talk about the countryside or the country being God's country. Right? You ever heard that statement? Ah, oh, now I'm in God's country. Why? Because it's beautiful. Because his, his power is on display and the grandness of the mountains and the power of the river and the, and the beauty of the colors. And, and there is this right just worship that wells up. And that, I'm, that is good. We are to find moments to retreat into the quiet, to be with God. I'm not talking that a vacation in this way is bad. I would contest that God's country is where the people of God are. That the beauty in mankind is a palette of his creation and power way beyond trees or rivers or mountains. And he proves this in, the, in his own creative creation testimony because all the rest of it, it was called good. And only when mankind was created did he say it was very good. Church, God intends to save his people, 
a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. If this is the case, then this is where we need to long to be, among the people, not running to the countryside to relive Little House on the Prairie and call that a good protection. We need to go where the lost and the wicked are those by which God intends to save. Jennifer and I were married in, in May of 1999, 20 years ago this month. We moved out of Orange County, California, a huge metropolis city of its, of its own, uh, and we moved to my family's favorite vacation spot, Shaver Lake, California. Beautiful Sierra Mountains. We bought an acre and a half with a creek running through it. We're in the trees. Bought this little shanty of a cabin, and we were like stoked as newlyweds to just have this extended honeymoon in the mountains. We actually left our honeymoon early because we were moving into our new house in the mountains. By God's providential plan, I left my marketing business in that time and went into full-time ministry, and God had ordained in that little mountain town a revival. And in, in the years to come, hundreds of kids in that high school would get saved, families would be forever changed, generations would change. God ordained that we'd get to be part of that. And after three years, it was clear as day that while many people plan to retire and finish and raise families in that kind of ideal scenario, that I'd be guilty of doing what only served us to stay there. That God had prepared us to preach and to teach and make disciples in a way that we needed to go back to the city. It was clearly insufficient what we were getting to do there. So we began to interview, and not that we were pursuing Bakersfield, California, but God's will made it clear to both of us that we'd come to First Baptist Church 2002 and be part of the, the turn of this historic church and its future and the ministry of the gospel in this great city. This is a great city. By, by modern um, metrics, uh, Bakersfield is the ninth largest city in California. California is massive. When you talk about people. And it's the 52nd biggest city in the United States of America. Where you live is truly a big city. Um, traffic is nowhere near as bad as other Southern California cities because we're more spread out, praise God. We have the worst air in the nation. Get that? N not the third worst. We have the worst air in the nation. Uh, it gets really uncomfortably hot here part of the year um, but there are three quarters of a million people that are in this in this area many many of which are desperate for the gospel of Jesus Christ church may we not retreat to the south or the midwest may our goal not to be to retire to some remote island in the Caribbean it is to go therefore and make disciples of all people of all nations May we boldly see God's call upon us to testify the gospel in this great city. Jesus said in Matthew 14 through 16, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You can't do that if you're in the remote backwoods of somewhere. 
What a pure joy it is to see many come to the Lord. Our church has almost doubled in one year. Many of you are part of the family of God or are growing your faith like you've never grown it before. Some of you have returned to our church after seasons of being away. Some of you have been saved and baptized. The wake of God's work through this body in you is happening. And it is making a difference in the generations, the, the children that we're going to celebrate in their journey of their faith this this evening, tonight, with the finish of foundation, there's so many different testimonies to how that's working itself out. It's a pure joy to see what God has for us. And this is what we see next. Look at verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. These wicked, selfish, worldly people believed God. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. Because all who he wants to have, he will have. Jesus said in John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. To tell the Jews there will be other people that we will have in the covenant, in the eternal family of God, was crazy news to them. Can you imagine how... Jonah, Jewish, how they're looking at the Ninevites. These people are going to repent. They're going to believe God. I have people that are not of this fold. Other sheep, not of this fold. And I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. They, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. This tells us this God's saving work is not random. It, it is not hopeful. It, it is purposeful to gather every one of his chosen sheep who because of his regenerating work on their dead hearts, they will hear his voice and recognize it, and upon hearing his voice will say yes to him, commit to him, and follow him the rest of their days. This is good news for the most wicked people. That man thinks is too far gone. No, if they are part of God's elect, they will believe and they will be saved. Out of every tribe, tongue, and nation will be his eternal family. This is why we keep preaching. This is why we keep teaching, why we keep witnessing and testifying. Because God is not done gathering his sheep. Praise God, he is perfect and purposeful and and able and faithful to see this through for his glory. And we have been invited to be part of it. If you're listening to this today, and you're hearing the good news that that God the Son takes on flesh, lives a life without sin, willingly dies a horrific death on the cross to take on our deserved sin, rises to conquer that death unto eternal life with God, that we who believe in Him, turn from our sin, believe in Him, trust Him with our lives, are saved and will forever be united to Him. Some of you are hearing that gospel, and it is good news to you. That is because God is giving you ears to hear, to believe, to trust in Him. They will listen to my voice, He says. All He has come to save will hear His call in His time, 
If this is you and this is happening today, it, is, it means you are one of his elect. You are hearing the good news of the gospel and you are commanded to repent and believe in Jesus alone for salvation, to join the local church, to be discipled, to serve him the rest of your days and allow him to use your life for his purposes and glory until he determines you're done. To take this good news to the lost, the redeemed, the wicked, the detestable, Hear the testimony of Nineveh again. They believed God and they repented. They fasted from the things that they had an overcling to. This is what fasting is. Fasting is voluntary going without something to seek the Lord. To, to know Him, worship Him, serve Him all the more. When thinking of fasting, many people only think of going without food. But, but it could be any good thing that you're voluntarily going without as a way to kind of clear the table. Fasting is a, a, a template of simplicity. It's a, it's a stripping of activities or happenings of the life in order to focus all the more on God. In this, fasting is a, a form of, of, of clearing your life of a distraction or a normal engagement in a way to, to, to say to your life and your heart, God is better. God is better than this. And as good as this might be, God is better. And, and so we disrupt the flow and the routine to remind our mind and our soul that God is better. There's this surrender modeled in fasting, this, this yielding to God modeled in fasting, trusting Him, releasing your grip on the temporary things to to be satisfied in him alone. And, and so, the, and so the, the people in their, in their fast, in their repentance are fasting here. And then look with me at verse 6 and 8 through 8. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Verse 5 said... The greatest to the least of these did this. And here's the testimony. We talk about the greatest of the people of Nineveh, the king himself. He joins in the people's repentance of their sin to trust in God, to believe God. He covers himself with sackcloth. He sits in ashes. What is that? It's an Old Testament practice, a symbol of mourning, a symbol of repentance. It's, it's another thing that kind of foreshadows to what Jesus would do in our place. Someone wanting to show his repentant heart would wear sackcloth, sit in ashes, even put ashes on his head. Sackcloth is this coarse material uh, made with black goat's hair. It was incredibly uncomfortable. Ashes would signify your desolation and ruin. In other words, it wasn't a flippant, like, passing confession. Yeah, yeah, okay, I did a bad thing. It was the way they showed true remorse for their sin. Just just completely say, there, there's no excuse here. This is terrible. There's real remorse here. Notice they even put sackcloth of their animals. 
Now, we know animals do not repent. Animals are not part of God's elect. But there's a symbolism displayed in the breadth and the width of this remorse, repentance, confession that we see in the animals in the land. Why? God had clearly already completely wiped out nations. Every person, every child, every uh, animal, every standing structure completely wiped out. And so there is just this, this complete across the board utter repentance, just humility before God we see in this incredibly wicked city. Awesome. Awesome. The Ninevites are not messing around. They're truly and fully confessing their sin and lamenting before God in every way they can think of. And what is really powerful and historic in this confession and repentance is that we just see the width their eyes, the, the eyes the Lord has given them to see their wickedness is citywide. It's without excuse. The king says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. What an understatement. I mean, they're surrounded by corpses. They have to look no farther than left or right and they just see the violence that's all around. The king's saying, let us repent of this. Let every man turn from his evil way from the violence that is in his hands. This is not, is this not a call on every man who lives in the common grace of God's rule and reign in all creation? And I just ask you, for you, what does this look like in your life today? What sin, what evil, what God belittling, dishonoring thought, practice, or way do you need to repent of today? Not just to say, God, this was bad, but to really turn from it unto a new path that honors him. And I love verse 9. Look at verse 9. Who knows, the king says, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. His hope is in God alone. His only hope, the hope of these people, is only for the mercy of God. And here's the point. This is your only hope too. The mercy of God in your life. You cannot outperform your sin. You cannot earn your way back. You're desperate in seeing your sin to be utterly desperate for a Savior for the grace of God. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The greatest problem in your life is not cancer. It is not poverty. It is not disobedient children. It is not a failed relationship. It is not the abandonment of a loved one. It is the wrath of God on unrepentant sinners. And to have the grace of God through the perfect work of Jesus applied to your life is the greatest gift you have ever been given. Nothing can touch it. Your only hope is Jesus. Your only salvation is the grace of God applied to your life through the perfect work of Jesus. And so hear it. For God so loved the world a worldwide people that he gave his only son, that whoever believes into him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, the light that has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest the works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is what God did for the wicked Ninevites. He brought his grace and his mercy. They, they confessed their wickedness and their sin. They embraced the light. God gave them eyes to see and ears to hear, and they believed him. And hear the testimony in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Oh, how they deserved his wrath. His judgment and wrath on them was well deserved, but God showed his mercy and his grace. And this is his sovereign right. Romans 9, 15 through 18, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so that so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. Praise God that he shows his power and his justice as he applies his wrath on many who deserve it. And praise God that he chooses to reveal his mercy on many who don't deserve it. Amen? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Is this your testimony? Do you see the utter and complete error of your sin before a holy God that causes you to wholly and completely trust your life to Jesus alone as Lord and Savior? To turn from your sin and begin to then live in Christ and honor Him with the remainder of your days? May it be so. May repentance Turning from sin to honor God be the daily practice of our lives for the glory of God and for our good and the good of those he puts before us. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for this word that you have endured and brought forth this third chapter of Jonah. You've persevered and given me the opportunity to preach it, to speak it, that we would the Holy Spirit would work on each of our lives to hear and understand and, and, and put to work these things, that we would be a truly repentant people, not just once in salvation, but ongoingly, that every day would be a day of repentance to continue to mature as we see sin, to turn from those things and honor you all the more. We're desperate for Jesus to do this. We cannot and will not do it on our own. For those that you have ordained that this would be the day that they would repent and believe and trust in you alone, I praise God. We look forward to who is, who is uh, readied for baptism next Sunday, Lord, to proclaim your work in their lives 
in this beautiful testimony. We thank you for the work that you're doing in each of us, for the call you've put upon our lives to commission and go and, and preach the gospel and make disciples of the nations, Lord, that we take these things so seriously, be joyful to be part of it for your glory. Lord, as we, as we consider the gospel in this final song, that we truly, truly are just humbled with gratitude for what you have done. We have no hope but by the blood of Jesus for redemption and mercy and grace. And so we praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.